Hi, I'm David Finnegan. I'm a writer, theatre artist and game designer who works with research scientists. This is a monthly audio series about how art and storytelling meets the world of complex systems, earth science and planetary transformation. During lockdown in Melbourne in 2021, my partner Rebecca and I signed up to volunteer with Wildlife Victoria. Two days of training, and then we were issued licenses confirming us as animal rescuers. And so we began. We didn't have a house where we could take care of recovering marsupials, and we weren't ready to emergency CPR on injured roadkill, so we started out as animal transporters. This means providing a taxi service, transporting injured animals from vet clinics to foster carers and vice versa. We signed up to WildNet, Wildlife Victoria's online database, and we started to receive text messages about wildlife incidents in our area. Uh, Injured ringtail possum in Box Hill South with wounds barely moving. Sick kookaburra, 110 grams, needs transporting from Albert Park to Mona Vale. Can you rescue one large lizard in sunshine, exposed on branch, needs small ladder? Whenever we could, we would accept one of these jobs. We'd load up our car with blankets, baskets, and heat packs. Our marsupials need to be kept warm. And head to the collection point, which is usually a suburban vet clinic. Because of COVID, we couldn't enter the building, so instead we'd be met in the car park by a vet nurse who would hand us a wriggling pillowcase and leave us to it. We'd make the animal as comfortable as we could in a basket on the back seat and then drive across town to deliver it to the home of the foster carer who'd committed to taking care of it. What we discovered is that there's a whole network of animal carers and transporters scattered throughout the city. We learned about the corridors and hotspots of activity for different animals, birds, reptiles, marsupials. We started to get a sense of the seasons and rhythms for different species and for the risks they face. A few hours on WildNet provides a snapshot of the hazards facing Victorian animals. A heavy storm is followed by a flurry of reports about possums injured by falling trees. Holiday traffic means a spike in orphaned kangaroos on the outskirts of the city. Springtime means a rise in the number of animals attacked by cats and dogs. Of course, it's sad to encounter these animals in the moment of their distress, but it was genuinely uplifting to meet this community of carers opening their homes to injured wildlife. And in the dull flat line of lockdown with a five kilometer limit on travel from our home and my practice as a theater artist on indefinite hold, it was delightful to feel this pulse of life and movement in the world around us. And one of the most hotly debated topics in the world of conservation is the idea of rewilding. The term first appeared in the 1980s to refer to a set of tools to help wilderness areas recover from the damage done to them. In the 1990s, rewilding came to focus on creating large core protected areas, ecological connectivity and keystone species. This was the three C's model of rewilding, cores, corridors and carnivores. Today, rewilding has come to mean many different things to different people. Like nature itself, the meaning of rewilding is both adaptable and contested. It's adaptable because the meaning keeps changing. It's contested because no one agrees on a single definition. There's a general agreement that the idea is important, that it matters, but beyond that, everything is up for debate. 
Like a lot of people, my first encounter with the word rewilding was in relation to the wolves in Yellowstone Park. In 1995, a pack of wolves was released in Yellowstone in the United States 70 years after the last Yellowstone wolf had died. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the population of deer in Yellowstone had been getting out of control. But as soon as the wolves returned, they began hunting the deer. That not only reduced the deer's numbers, it also changed their behavior. Deer started to keep away from the valleys and the rivers where they could be easily caught. That meant the trees by the riverbanks could grow back, with the deer no longer grazing them. Those new trees provided cover for fish, habitat for songbirds, but most crucially, they encouraged beavers to return. Beavers gnawed through the trees to create dams, and those dams created habitat for otters, muskrats, frogs, and reptiles. The trees also stabilized the banks of the river, which reduced erosion. The wolves also hunted coyotes, which was good news for the animals that coyotes hunt, like rabbits and mice. And more rabbits and more mice meant more prey for hawks, weasels, foxes, and badgers. The carrion left behind by wolves also provided food for bald eagles, ravens, and bears. So within a few years of the return of the wolf, the diversity and health of the ecosystem had rebounded beyond all prediction. The Yellowstone wolf is an example of perhaps the most high-profile and divisive form of rewilding, reintroducing animals to an ecosystem where they've previously gone extinct. And there are many arguments for restoring animals to areas where they once lived. But for many people, this veers dangerously close to the practice of introducing species, which in Australia alone has led to the uncontrolled outbreak of rabbits, foxes, cats, and cane toads. For a lot of farmers, reintroducing predators like wolves or dingoes in Australia to a rural region is utterly unacceptable. This clash has led to one of the more fascinating phenomena in the world of conservation recently. Gorilla rewilding. The secret and illegal reintroduction of animals into an ecosystem. There have been a number of cases of beavers being secretly released into British wetlands. In Australia, activity has been more circumspect, but there is no doubt that gorilla conservationists have released Tasmanian devils into the snowy mountains returning them to an ecosystem that they haven't inhabited for nearly 3,000 years. Some people want to go further still, not just reintroducing animals to old ecosystems where they used to live, but introducing brand new species to new parts of the world. This is the idea behind the plan to introduce rhinos to Australia. Australia has never had a population of wild rhinoceros, but we did used to have the Deprotodon, a sort of wombat the size of a hippo. A browsing herbivore and filled a similar sort of niche to the rhino. And the Deprotodon went extinct in Australia around 30,000 years ago. Our rhinos are going extinct in Africa, but it's possible they could survive in Australia. Advocates for this plan, including martial arts film star Jean-Claude Van Damme, make the point that Globally, we rely on a few countries in Africa to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of preserving our remaining wild megafauna. So maybe wealthy countries like Australia should be doing a bigger share. Of course, rhinos aren't deprotodons, and deprotodons haven't been around for 30,000 years, so who knows what would happen if we 
put rhinos in Australia. But Australia already has more wild camels than the entire Arabian Peninsula, so it's not like we're protecting a pure ecosystem. If rhinos could thrive in Australia, shouldn't Australia try to take them in? If Jean-Claude Van Damme thinks it's a good idea, is that an argument in its favour or against it? And these are just some of the debates raised by rewilding. So rewilding seems to encourage bold and optimistic plans that look towards the future rather than the slow losing struggle to preserve a vanishing past. But at the other end of the spectrum, some people argue that rewilding is not something we do to ecosystems, it's something we do to ourselves. In his controversial rewilding manifesto, Feral, George Monbiot argues that rewilding is not about nature for nature's sake, it's for us. Rewilding is something we should do for our own health and well-being, to shake off our ecological boredom. As Nicole Seymour points out, conservation has traditionally been a very dry and serious endeavour. Caring for the environment tends to involve a lot of sadness, shame, guilt, anger, and not much else. And that kind of emotional range really works for some people, but for others, it's not a very inviting space to step into. So rewilding is a chance to reframe this approach, to open ourselves up to other emotional responses to the environment. Rewilding can mean entangling ourselves in the environment. We can let nature under our skin freak us out, fuck us up. Seymour argues that queer environmental activists have led the way in this approach. She points to the eco-sexual movement, spearheaded by porn star and activist Annie Sprinkles and Beth Stevens. Their tongue-in-cheek manifesto says, We shamelessly hug trees, massage the earth with our feet, and talk erotically to plants. We are skinny dippers, sun worshippers, and stargazers. We caress rocks, are pleasured by waterfalls, and admire the earth's curves. We make love with the earth through our senses. We are very dirty. Caring about the environment in the 21st century means metabolizing a huge amount of loss and grief. The loss of environments and species that you grew up with, the grief for those losses still to come. We live in a depleted, fraying biosphere made up of agricultural systems, feral animals, and pests. And yet despite that, we have to find a way to fall in love with the world around us. We only have a few years in this world, and grief and loss is not a foundation to build life on. We have to fight for what we can save, care for what we can keep, and help bring a new world to life. And that's going to take all of our lives and many lifetimes to come. And there's time for sadness and shame and guilt and anger, but there's got to be more than that. There's got to be delight, curiosity, fascination, awe, and laughter. I don't know how to fall in love with the world as it unravels around me. But last winter, I felt something new. Driving a frightened possum through the outskirts of Melbourne at sunset, helping it nestle into a warm blanket in a dark room, getting a text message about another delivery to do before dawn, the birds settling in for the night, and teenagers buying drugs in the car park where we're collecting another marsupial. Isn't that love? 
that comes over you then.